In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. In reading through this morning's gospel lesson, I was reminded of a book that I came across some years ago by a professor of history at the University of Maryland. His name was Gordon Prange, and the title of the book was, At Dawn We Slept. It's a definitive account of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and the title of that book says it all. For just before 8 a.m. on December 7, 1941, America's sense of confidence and security were absolutely shattered when 350, 350 Japanese aircraft, Zeros, dive bombers, and torpedo planes took aim at the unsuspecting U.S. naval station on the island of Oahu. The attack lasted a mere one hour and 15 minutes, but the results were absolutely catastrophic. 2,400 Americans, military and civilian, were killed. 19 American vessels, including eight battleships, were sunk. The U.S. Pacific Fleet was crippled, and the nation itself was catapulted into the Second World War. President Roosevelt described it as a day that would live in infamy. And yet what's truly sad is that it was a day and a disaster that might very well have been avoided. For you see, just 24 hours before, American intelligence had intercepted a Japanese military communique inquiring about ship locations and berthing positions at Pearl Harbor. The cryptologist who deciphered the message quickly passed it on to her superior, expecting immediate results. But her superior remained nonchalant. He shrugged his shoulders and commented that it was probably nothing more than meaningless radio chatter. But he would be sure to look into it when the weekend was over. He would look into it on Monday, December 8th. The result, of course, is that when the surprise attack occurred on Sunday, December 7th, the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor was caught napping. The title of the book was correct, At Dawn We Slept. Well, being awake, being prepared, not being taken by surprise, that is what today's gospel lesson is all about. By the time you get to this section of Matthew's gospel, chapters 24 and 25, it is clear Jesus' public ministry is rapidly drawing to a close. In fact, we're told that the Lord had entered Jerusalem for the very last time. And as he was passing by the temple complex, his disciples drew his attention to the magnificence of the buildings. Mark's version says that they encouraged him to look at the massive stones and the beautiful monuments. And to be sure, the temple that had been constructed by King Herod there in Jerusalem was a magnificent building, one of the wonders of the ancient world. But Matthew tells us Jesus remained unimpressed. Instead, he took this as an opportunity to remind his disciples of the transient nature of all things earthly and of the need that they had to concentrate on his kingdom, a kingdom that he said that unlike the kingdoms of this world would be eternal. 
and a kingdom that he said would reach its full potential, its full consummation when he returned in glory. There were four overarching messages that Jesus was trying to drive home to his disciples in this section of the gospel. First, Jesus wanted his disciples to understand the reality of the second coming. He makes it very clear. His death, resurrection, and ascension would not be the end of the story. He would come again with power. Second, Jesus wanted his disciples to understand the unpredictable timing of that second coming. At the end of chapter 24, he says, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels, not even the Son, he says, but only the Father. Third, Jesus wanted the disciples to understand that his coming would be accompanied by a day of division, by a day of separation. He said it would be a day of judgment. At the end of chapter 25, he says, but on that day, the Son of Man shall sit upon his throne, and all the nations shall be gathered before him. And he shall separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And fourth, Jesus said that he wanted his disciples to be ready. Given the reality of the second coming, given the unpredictable timing of the second coming, and given the fact that judgment would accompany the second coming, Jesus was saying men and women everywhere needed to be ready. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. Are you ready? If Jesus Christ were to come back today to judge the quick and the dead, would you be prepared to meet him, that one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, that one from whom no secrets are hid? And let's face it, even if Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetime, the Scriptures are clear we're all going to stand before him sooner or later. The book of Hebrews says it is appointed man once to die, and then there is judgment. So again, I ask the question, are you ready? Well, if you're not sure how you would answer that question, if you're not sure whether or not you will be caught napping when he appears, then I want you to understand the parable that we have before us today. This parable of the ten virgins, or the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins, as it's sometimes called, is meant for you. Because being ready, being prepared, is what this story is really all about. Now, as with all of Jesus' parables, the scene is a familiar one. Jesus always used illustrations or images drawn from real life, images that the people of his day would have readily recognized. And on this particular occasion, the image that Jesus uses is the image of a Jewish wedding feast. First century Jewish weddings were among the most celebrated of all social events. And they always had three parts. The first part was what was known as the engagement. And this was normally something that was set up by the parents of the bride and the groom, the fathers in particular. And it was something that the couple actually had very little say in. Now, I know that sounds strange to us living in the 21st century, but in that culture and in that day, almost all weddings were prearranged. 
And I've got to say that as a father of a teenage girl, I'm not entirely sure that that's such a bad idea. <laughs> the second part of the marriage rite was what was known as the betrothal. Now, this is more similar to one of our modern weddings. At this point, the bride and the groom would make vows to each other in the presence of family and friends, thereby entering into a binding legal contract, one that could only be dissolved by means of a legal divorce. And if either one of the parties violated this agreement, well, the penalty could be severe. It's worth noting that at this point, the bride and the groom were considered married in the eyes of the community and in the eyes of the law, and yet they were not permitted to live together nor to consummate the marriage. Instead, for the next six months, for up to a year, in fact, the bridegroom was expected to go out and establish himself in some sort of trade or profession, proving that he could actually provide for his new wife. But then finally, after he had done so, there was the third part of the Jewish wedding rite, and that was the wedding feast. And it was the wedding feast and the attending celebrations that the entire community participated in. A Jewish wedding feast could go on for an entire week. It was always joyful and exuberant. And it always started in the same way, with the great procession of the groom to the bride's house. After sundown, the bridegroom, accompanied by his groom's men, would make their way toward the bride's house. The cry would go up, the bridegroom is approaching. The bridesmaids would come out with their lamps trimmed and their torches lit to light his path and to add a sense of festivity to the occasion. It was here at the wedding feast that the bride's hand was finally placed in the groom's hand, and they were given permission to begin their life together. Well, it's this last part of the Jewish wedding rite, this triumphal procession of the bridegroom to the bride's house that Jesus is describing here in this parable. And it's meant to be a picture of Christ himself, the true bridegroom, coming back to claim his bride, which is the church. And it's meant to teach us some very important lessons about being prepared for that event when it occurs. What are these lessons? Well, I think the first one is pretty obvious. It's that the bridegroom is coming, but we need to be prepared for a delay. All 10 of these women had been anticipating the arrival of the bridegroom. All 10 of them had been waiting for him. But for whatever reason, we're told that he was delayed. He did not come as anticipated. Perhaps he was delayed for several hours. And the result, Jesus said, is that all ten of the women became drowsy. All ten of the women fell asleep and their lamps went out. But at midnight, the cry went up, the bridegroom is coming. They were all roused from their sleep. Jesus said five of them were ready. Five of them had been wise. They had anticipated the prospect of a delay, and so they had a reserve of oil. But five of them, he said, had not been wise. They'd been indolent. They'd been foolish. They'd been lazy. They had not anticipated the possibility of a delay, and so their 
supply of oil was exhausted. They had to go into town to buy more, and while they were gone, the bridegroom arrived, and they missed out on the celebrations entirely. Now, if Jesus is the bridegroom in the story, the point is pretty clear. The bridegroom is coming, but he may be delayed, and we need to be prepared for that. I mean, let's face it, it has been a long time since Jesus made that promise to his disciples, hasn't it? It's been some 2,000 years, and he still hasn't shown up. And the result is that many people have become spiritually drowsy. They have fallen asleep. Many people have started to doubt whether he's coming back at all. Here's the way Peter describes it in his second epistle. He speaks of this very attitude. He says, know this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have from the beginning of creation. And it's not just scoffers who think that way, is it? There are many so-called believing Christians who have fallen asleep, spiritually speaking. Just ask yourself this question. How many of us, when we get up in the morning to begin our daily routine, when we're sitting there enjoying our coffee or reading the internet or reading the newspaper, stop and suddenly say to ourselves, you know, today could be the day. I mean, Jesus could come back today. And therefore, I need to be ready. I need to be prepared. I need to be about the Lord's business. I suspect very few of us operate on that level. No, we're more concerned with what we regard as the truly pressing matters of day-to-day living. What items need to go on the grocery store list? When am I going to get the oil in the car changed? How am I going to get the kids to band practice and then get to my next meeting? It's not as though we deny the fact that Christ is going to come again. We just don't think that it's imminent. We just don't think that it's a pressing matter. And therefore, we go about our daily lives as though he's not coming back at all. But my friends, that is a grave mistake. For Peter, in that same section of his epistle, goes on to say this. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years And a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But he's being patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed for all to see. That's the first lesson. The bridegroom is delayed, but if he is delayed, it is only out of mercy, so that as many people as possible might be saved, but he will come. And we need to be prepared for that. Here's the second lesson this parable teaches us. It's that when Christ comes, salvation will be non-transferable. 
When Christ comes, salvation will be non-transferable. What was the very first thing that the foolish virgins who had failed to make provision did when they realized that the bridegroom was coming and their supply of oil was exhausted? They went to the others to ask for help. And the response they received was rather frigid. They were told, no, there won't be enough oil for us and for you. You go into town, find a merchant, and buy oil for yourself. Now, if you read this story literally, you come away with the impression that those wise virgins were being a little uncharitable. I mean, aren't we taught to share and share alike? This almost sounds like a sorority rivalry. No, you can't have any of ours. You go buy some for yourself. But listen, that is to miss the point of the story. Jesus is not talking about generosity here. Jesus is not talking about sharing here. Jesus is talking about preparedness. He's talking about being ready, and he is clear. The point is that when he appears, whatever that may be, like a thief in the night, we will not be able to appeal to others for help. Many people seem to think that if they've been raised in a Christian church or in a Christian family, their parents were devout believers, that there is this sort of build-up reservoir of grace that they are going to be able to call on in the day of trouble. Reminds me of a scene from one of my favorite movies. It's an old movie. When I say old, I mean the 1940s. It stars William Powell, Irene Dunn, and a very young Elizabeth Taylor. The title of the movie is Life with Father. And in this particular scene, mother is deeply concerned about her husband's well-being, father's well-being, because he has no interest in spiritual matters. He goes to church. They're Episcopalians, incidentally. He goes to church but he doesn't kneel for the prayers. He doesn't stand for the creed. He doesn't do anything at all. And finally, mother, in a fit of desperation, turns to him one day, and she says, Claire, his name is Claire, and she says, Claire, you've got to make your peace with God. For heaven won't be heaven for me if you are not there. To which father replies, oh, Vinny, her name is Lavinia, oh, Vinny, I'm not worried about that. You have enough goodness for the both of us. I'm sure that if I run into any trouble with St. Peter at the gate, you will be able to sort the whole thing out. Well, that's what many people think. They think, well, I've got a good relationship with the rector or one of the other priests. Or I had a really good Sunday school teacher or a great instructor in the confirmation class. I have dear friends who are Christians. I'm sure if I run into any trouble on that day, one of them will put in a good word for me. Well, listen, if that's what you think this morning, I want to disabuse you of that idea right now. The scriptures are clear. Christianity, the Christian faith, is not something that we inherit. It's not something that gets passed on to us in the bloodstream. It is something that we must own for ourselves. 
You must know the bridegroom. You must expect the bridegroom. You must follow the bridegroom. As you've heard me say many times before, Christianity at its heart is not about religion. It is about a relationship. It is about knowing Christ personally. It is a deeply personal thing. Now, it's not a private thing. We're called to share the good news with the whole world, but it is a deeply personal thing. So I ask you, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you following him on a daily basis? Do you seek his glory and his will for your life? Listen, don't be fooled. The bridegroom is coming, and he is coming at a time when we least expect it. And when he comes, you are not going to be able to borrow help or salvation or righteousness from any other person any more than the foolish virgins in this story were able to borrow oil from the wise. Bishop J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, put it well. He said, it is not knowing and believing that Christ is a Savior that can deliver your soul. There must be an actual transaction between you and Christ. You must be able to say, Christ is my Savior because I have come to Him by faith. I have taken Him for my own. That's the second lesson that this parable teaches us. It teaches us that we will stand or fall on the basis of the decisions that we alone have made regarding him. Here's the third lesson that this parable teaches us. It teaches us that missed opportunities are gone forever. Missed opportunities are gone forever. This may be the most chilling aspect of the story. For we're told that when those foolish virgins realized they had no oil and had to run into town to get some more, and they came back, they discovered that the door to the feast had been shut, and they were left out in the cold. Beginning at verse 10, we read these words. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now again, if you read this story literally, remember it is a parable, but if you read it literally, you think to yourself, gosh, that's really harsh. Those poor women were shut out. But again, the parable is not operating on that level. Jesus is not talking about grace. He's not talking about mercy. He's talking about being prepared. Yes, God has delayed, but as Peter reminds us, if he is delayed, he's delayed why? Because he's being patient. He wants as many people as possible to be saved, as many people as possible to respond to the gospel invitation. But we should not presume. We cannot think that God's patience will last forever. Jesus is very clear, he will come back. And when he comes back, that window of opportunity, that chance to be saved will have closed. And it can't be regained. 
Most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the name J.K. Rowling. She's one of the most successful authors probably in the past 100 years. Her Harry Potter series has been wildly successful. Whole series of books turned into a whole series of very successful movies, even turned into an amusement park in Florida. She's one of the richest women in the world. When Queen Elizabeth died, J.K. Rowling was worth more than the Queen of England. But did you know that the first publisher she submitted that book to, the Harry Potter book, rejected it without ever having read it? When she first started off, she was, she had fallen on hard times. She was having a very difficult time. She was divorced. She was raising a child. She didn't have two dimes to rub together. She didn't even have a decent envelope, but she took her manuscript and rammed it into an envelope as best she could and sealed it and sent it off to the publisher. When the publisher got it, he didn't like the way it looked, and so he rejected it without ever having read it. He didn't even send back a proper note, just a scrawled note that said, your manuscript did not fit in the envelope, therefore it is rejected. You think he had a missed opportunity? You think he regrets that decision? He missed out on one of the greatest publishing opportunities in all of history. It's a tragedy. Well, listen, it pales by comparison to the tragedy of missing out on the wedding feast with Jesus Christ because we failed to make a decision for him now. That's why Jesus ends this section with these solemn words, watch therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. So be ready. Now you may be sitting out there and thinking to yourself, this is a little frightening. <laughs> How do I know that I'll be ready? How do I know for certain that I'll be numbered among the wise, that my lamp will be trimmed and burning? How do I know that I won't be caught napping? Well, I'll tell you, the answer is really very simple. See, we have a tendency to look at the differences between these women, but actually if you look at these ten virgins, one of the things that you'll notice is that they were more alike than they were different. Think about it. All ten of them had received an invitation to the wedding feast, hadn't they? All ten of them apparently had responded positively to the invitation. All ten of them were anticipating the arrival of the bridegroom. All ten of them had a certain degree of affection or respect for the bridegroom. They call him Lord. And all ten of them, when he was delayed, fell asleep and their lamps went out. It wasn't just the wise or the foolish, it was the wise as well. And yet Jesus is very clear, when the shout went up, the bridegroom is approaching, five were ready and five were not. So what was the difference between them? Really only one thing. Charles Haddon Spurgeon described it this way, he said, it could only be one thing, that great interchange that is brought about by the new birth. He wrote, a great change must be wrought in you far beyond any power of yours to accomplish, ere you can go in with Christ to the marriage supper. 
You must first of all, he said, be renewed in your nature or you will not be ready. You must be washed from your sins or you will not be ready. You must be renewed in your nature. You must be justified in Christ's righteousness. You must put on His wedding dress or else you will not be ready. Or to come to this parable before us, He says, you must have a lamp and that lamp must be fed with heavenly oil and it must burn brightly for all the world to see or else you will not be ready. For no child of darkness can go into that place of light. You must be brought out of nature's darkness into God's marvelous light, or else you will never be ready to go in with Christ to the marriage supper and to be forever with Him. In short, Spurgeon says the only way to be ready is to be born again. It is to become a new creation. Well, take a good hard look at your own life today and ask this question. Have I become a new creation? I'm not asking the question, have you heard the invitation? All ten of the women had received the invitation. Many people hear the gospel invitation today and they completely ignore it. I'm not asking if you responded positively to the invitation. All ten of the women responded positively to the invitation. I have known many people who have walked down an aisle during the playing of Just As I Am and said the sinner's prayer, and it made no difference in their lives whatsoever. I'm not asking, do you have a certain degree of affection for the Lord? Jesus said on that day, many will cry out, Lord, Lord, but I will say, I never knew you. I'm not asking if you believe that he will come again. Lots of people stand up on church on Sunday and say the creed without crossing their fingers, and yet Jesus said they'll be lost in the end. The question is this, are you a new creation? Is God doing a work in your life today? Has the Holy Spirit taken up residence in you and he is changing you, transforming you. You see the old man, the old woman passing away, and you see yourself becoming something new. Listen, we're not saved by our works. I want to make that very clear. We're saved entirely by the grace of God received by faith. But Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. Works don't save us, but they are the evidence of salvation. And when I say works, I'm not talking about the works that are pleasing to men. I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are those the things that characterize your life? When you look at yourself, do you see yourself growing in grace, becoming more like Jesus? That's what it means to be a new creation. That's what it means to have experienced the new birth. If you can look back over the course of your life and see that, if your sins are more apparent to you than ever before and your desire to be more like Christ is greater than ever, then brother, sister, you'll be ready. You'll be ready when He comes. Whether He comes at midday, at night, or when the cock crows, you'll be ready. But if you're looking at your life and you cannot see that change, if you've just been saying the words but nothing has actually taken place in you, then I want you to know you're not ready. 
And today is the acceptable day of salvation. Today is the day to make that decision for Jesus Christ. Because none of us knows the hour nor the day that he will return. None of us knows when we will be called to account. So if you're not sure, today is the day to give your life to him. Your whole life to him. Not just a part of it, but everything that you have. Give it all to Jesus Christ. Allow his Holy Spirit to come and take up residence in you and to begin to make you into the likeness of God's Son. So that when he appears with power and great glory, you may rejoice to behold his appearing. And arm in arm, groom and bride, you may be led into that great wedding feast that is the marriage supper of the Lamb. God grant that it may be with that with you today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a powerful parable to us. It is a message about being ready, not being caught by surprise, but being prepared for the coming of your Son. Don't let us fool ourselves into thinking we are ready. If we're not, grant us the grace to humble ourselves before your throne this day, to receive Jesus Christ, to allow him to come and make us into something other than what we are. Take away our hearts of stone. Give us hearts of flesh. Make us new creations. That when he comes again in glory, we may lift up our heads knowing that our salvation draweth nigh. We ask this in Jesus' name.